2: This is really where I wanted to touch base on on weatherization for us and what it means to us. So You see two different types of heat trace on this table. These are actual heaters, okay? So you've got your insulation, you've got some form of a median flowing through here such as water. Anything that's flowing inside of this tube has all of these levels of insulation as well as a heater. That's what's going to prevent those lines from freezing which allows us to be reliable in those cold weather events. Welcome to Yolitics, the home of cold beer and hot takes on Texas politics.
0: Welcome back to Yolitics here. Just got back from a little road trip, Wheeler. Uh, You bailed on me, man. You bailed on me. No, you
3: bailed on me. You left and did the road trip, and I had to stay back here in (laughs) Dallas and actually work. In fact, I think I was covering your shift.
0: You, You were covering that, so thank you very much. You know what I got on the road trip? What'd you get? I, I, did, I didn't even realize this until I, I came in here. I just grabbed one. But my beer today, Road Trip Snacks.
3: Wow, that's nice. Huh? I, and it's really it, cool that you got some for everyone, even the people I, who had to cover your shift.
0: Well, listen, this is a real beer. I, I, I think that's the name of the beer. It's not that big on, on the can here. But it's it's by Panther Island Brewing Company, which is over in Fort, Fort Worth, Worth, obviously. Nice. But it is, it is an ale brewed with beaver nuggets.
3: Interesting. From, from Bucky's. Bucky's. From
0: huh. bucky's. I and like beaver nuggets, and I like ales, so let's see if I like
3: ale brewed with beaver nuggets. Sometimes it doesn't work out that way, where you like two things, and then they're put together in a can of beer, and you really don't like them. How is it? It's not bad. It's kind tell of like me, a winter beer. Okay, well, the, the trick is going to be to tell me after, like, the fourth swig, because anything's cute for, like, two or three, you know, uh, mouths full, and then you get to that fourth one, and you're like, okay, I think I've had enough of this.
0: It's not bad. I okay. mean, I... I it, we you know for our topic today we should be having a darker beer.
3: <laughs> Why is it a dark topic? Would you say? <laughs> well,
0: no, we're talking about the oil patch. Oil patch. Hey, do you that's say true. oil or old?
3: I say oil, but there are a lot of people in my family that say all.
0: Yeah, all. And which like, I don't it, get. I don't know. I, that's I, I like don't get pronouncing.
3: That's like pronouncing Houston. Houston. You don't say Houston? No, goodness, no. It's Houston <laughs> with a big capital U. <laughs> Um, whoa, Wait, that was whoa, a live whoa. one there. Did, <laughs> did you, You've been shaking up my beers? Did you just get sprayed all over the place? I did. I just got that right across the face, and oh, I think half it's... of the can is now uh, on the concrete here.
0: we got to put this on YouTube, man. we got to put this on YouTube. What no, you we shouldn't.
3: We really shouldn't. Uh, I, I'm totally unprepared today. I'm having a garage beer. It is an out-of-state beer. I know. It's brewed in Covington, Kentucky. That's a good beer. Um, Yeah, what I'm doing is I'm finishing off what's in the refrigerator. And this is like the next to last one in there. And then I'm going to bring in some more beers because there's just all these that have been sitting. This has probably been in there since like 1989. I mean, it's just, it's been a while, you know, so it's time to get rid of these.
0: But, but I thought Mrs. Wheeler keeps your uh, your your beer stock refreshed consistently, doesn't
3: she? She does. But the problem is, there's those in the back, you know. There's yeah, that I, little. I it, it's like this little group of beers back in the back, and they never get selected. Well, I've I've been selecting them here lately, and I'm going to finish it off just in an effort to clean out our refrigerator because it's it's bad.
0: I, I have a number of those. They're like you know partial six packs that someone's brought over for some reason, and I don't drink those beers, and they sit there until I can give them away or use them in some other way.
3: Yeah, and then the problem is is that, you know, they're supposed to stay cold and then we have, you know, times when they get warm. Like, I don't know, uh, last February. How's that for a segue? Oh, Uh, look at that segue. Huh? Like this past February when it just, everything just went wrong and it was like we weren't even in civilization anymore. Uh, And we went through this deep freeze for days and days. Everybody lost power or most or a lot of people in Texas lost power. Uh, It was a horrible situation. The temperatures were brutal. We lost hundreds of fellow Texans who actually died because they were so cold, uh, even inside their homes. I mean, it was getting down to freezing inside people's homes. And for months and months and months, we have been hearing from Austin saying we have got to prevent this from happening again.
0: Listener, let me just put a, a tab on that line from Wheeler there because he's trying to uh, not get another email from the boss uh wants us to get to this pretty quickly. So I agree. I like your segue, and, and let's get to it. Um, it, it you know, it, how soon we forget is what I would say. The weather's perfect outside now. and a lot I'm sitting of us outside
3: as we speak, and it's great. You are, uh, and,
0: and I'm envious of that. But, you know, the weekend of February 14th, Valentine's Day weekend, you remember that? Oh, yeah. We, we are, what, 59, 60 days away from the start of winter. It's, it's, it is coming again. And the question is, is Texas ready for it again? Is, is the energy infrastructure system, has it been fixed? Uh, th- so, you know, for those of you who don't know where your power comes from, most of the electric uh, generation facilities in this state, more than half of them, are fed and are fueled by natural gas. Mm -hmm. So natural gas and electricity is very intertwined here, if you remember any of the news coverage from back in February uh, when all the power went out. So all the power goes out then, the legislature goes to work, they start working on things, uh, lawmakers get distracted on other topics, and this thing just kind of moves off to the side. Mm -hmm. We go out, you heard there in the beginning of the podcast, we go out to Midlothian the the other day, Vistra Corporation, it's the largest uh, energy uh, electric generator in the state of Texas. It has, I think, what, 19 plants. Uh, 14 of them are, are uh, powered by natural gas. There's Comanche Peak nuclear power plant, which is uh, south, uh, southwest of Fort Worth, and then a few other coal-powered uh, power plants as well. But Vistra invites uh, us out to take a look at their plant down in Midlothian, it's a natural gas facility down there. They have a whole natural gas yard where all this natural gas comes in, spins turbines, creates electricity, sends electricity to the grid, and it's you know charges your phone at night. So uh, we go take a look at it because Vistra says, listen, we don't feel a 1,000% confident that everything's going to be fine. We think things will be fine this coming winter, but we don't know 100%. So we're going to weatherize our stuff. We're going to go above and beyond. Uh, And if you guys want to come see this, because we don't normally let people come down and take a look at these things. If you want to come look at it, you can come look at it.
3: But Jason, it seems like that was supposed to, I think everybody thought that the whole system was going to winterize, or weatherize rather, getting into the next winter. And I think that most Texans thought, well, after all of this, surely they're going to make sure that everything is completely wrapped up and, and safe this time around.
0: Surely they would, right? Surely. Well, surely? (laughs) Surely, <laughs>
3: Don't call me Shirley.
0: Uh, don't call me Shirley. <laughs> That's a good film, too. So, uh, exactly. You would think this would have been done. You would think this would have been required by state lawmakers. It wasn't required by state lawmakers. So you have a number of electric facilities that are, are preparing. You have a number of natural gas facilities, we learned in this podcast, that are preparing as well, too. But there's no real mandate Requiring natural gas. Mm. So this has spooked the electric providers because they're like, hey, we want to produce electricity, mm-hmm. but if the same requirements aren't uh, on the natural gas folks, we can't guarantee it's going to be produced. So down there in Midlothian the other day, we interviewed... Uh, the president of Vistra Corporation, a guy named Jim Burke, he was with TXU for a long time. He's the president and chief financial officer. And, and the question I asked him, the question we're going to pose to everybody here, Jason, is how concerned should I be about my electricity staying on this winter? And here's what Jim Burke told us from Vistra Corp.
2: I think we should all take every precaution to get ready for this winter. We're concerned.
3: I think our elected officials are concerned, our regulators are concerned. We're putting backup such as fuel oil in place for some of our plants. I wish we didn't have to do that because we'd like for there to be plentiful natural gas because that's the preferred fuel. Texas is effectively the Saudi Arabia of natural gas. We should be able to get that gas to fuel our grid. But in the event we can't, we're putting backups in place such as fuel oil, so that we're able to do even better than we did this last winter because Texans deserve it.
0: So they're, they're putting diesel fuel at mm-hmm. a lot of their facilities that have backup generators in case the gas goes offline. It's it's just phenomenal we're in this situation, Jason.
3: And you can hear him softly there, uh, you know, leveling some criticism and saying it would be nice if this happened all the way along uh, the process here, including uh, at the natural gas wellheads. And it means a lot to them there at Vistra as well because they can, you know, completely safeguard their plants. But it's not going to matter if they can't get the fuel to be able to turn that fuel into electricity. And this last time around in February, they lost Vistra did, lost $2 billion in a matter of several days there. So this hits their bottom line in a huge way if the whole system doesn't work like it should. And I think that that's their big concern here is that upstream, as they call it, uh, upstream where the raw materials are coming in, they're worried that those haven't been hardened enough, that they haven't been weatherized, uh, winterized enough, and that they're not going to be able to, you know, be able to rely on that supply of gas coming in.
0: And that was a surprise to a, to some state lawmakers uh, a few weeks back. Too maybe you read this and some of the uh, the headlines that the state lawmakers were asking the railroad commission, "Hey, are, is everyone ready for the winter? Here we go, it's coming up. You guys ready for it, natural gas folks?" And the natural gas folks were saying, "No, we, we can uh, opt out. Some of our folks can opt out of being a critical, of being designated as a critical infrastructure. What does that mean? Well." You know, this is one place that's critical. The electricity has to come into this natural gas well so we can provide enough gas to power the power plants, and those power plants can keep hospitals running and 911 centers, et cetera. The problem is, written into all this, is, is the fact that for paying a $150 fee, that natural gas providers can opt out of being declared a, a critical infrastructure. And there's a state rep named John Rosenthal. He's a Democrat from uh, North, northwest Houston. Mm-hmm. And he introduced a bill to, to change all this in the third special session that is ending right now as we speak here. And and John's on the line with us here. Re- Representative, I want to ask you the same question that I asked uh, Jim Burke from Vistra a moment ago. The question is, will my electricity stay on this winter? How concerned are you about that?
1: Uh, I'll I'll put it this way: We're still vulnerable. So the same uh, the same cross dependency between natural gas and electric generation uh, that was a critical link that caused the cascading failure. That dependency still exists, and and uh, also we have not shored up both sides of it. So the electrical generation side are required to weatherize the natural gas side has a loophole in it or not. Required. But, but I, I thought the
0: governor said that everything that, that should be done has been done. So the question is, did the
1: legislature not do everything that it was supposed to do? Um, the short answer to your question is, no, we didn't do what we were supposed to do because they didn't listen to the engineer in the house. You know, I offered amendments and advice uh, uh, and I was perfectly happy to let someone else carry, let a Republican carry the amendments or whatever uh, to make sure that it got done. And they were just unwilling to consider uh, my advice.
3: For people who aren't familiar, Representative Rosenthal, you are a mechanical engineer uh, who's worked in uh, the subsea uh, natural gas industry. So you have a very good insight into you know what you're trying to regulate here, what you're trying to improve here. Yeah, Is actually, it just
1: I've got a couple decades of experience all around oil and gas. So subsea, on land, oil, gas, all of it.
3: So is this just a matter of your fellow lawmakers not grasping what you grasp here? Or is there something else at play that this hasn't been taken care of appropriately?
1: So uh, in... It's a good question. You know, I can't say what other people have grasped or not. In the instance where I spend the time to explain these things and make a big deal out of it on the House floor and talking behind the scenes with some of these uh, uh, representatives, um, you know, if they end up not doing it, there's other other folks that are influencing them for sure. And so I I just think it's the oil and the gas, oil and gas industry um, don't want to be beholden to government regulations. I I offered to restructure those regulations so that they would get to define their own requirements. And uh, that didn't fly either. So so here we are.
0: And and you you have a bill and the uh, here we are, at the, you know, the end of the third special legislative session. You have a bill that would close a loophole. Explain to our listeners what this bill is about, why it's important and tell us where it is in the process. Um,
1: so the bill will not be taken up. Uh, it was not. In order to consider legislation in a special session, it has to be part of the governor's mandate. Governor issues a call, explains what he wants us to work on, and that those are the, the items that are inbounds. And, and even though that was the case, I still <laughs> filed a bill uh, hoping to convince some folks to at least look at it. Uh, but this bill removes a loophole that um, the loophole allows natural gas providers and not just the people that take it out of the ground, move it in pipes and and buy it and sell it, all of that. Um, there's a loophole where they get to self-identify as critical infrastructure. And unless they do, unless they say, oh, yeah, I'm part of the energy supply chain, then they're not required to weatherize. So my loophole removes the part where they identify and and charges the Railroad Commission with doing that and, and requires that some facilities be set up to provide gas in the cold.
3: I think a lot of people are going to find that to be kind of amazing, uh, Representative, because, you know, we had this happen in February where we actually had it so cold here in Texas uh, that these wellheads, these natural gas wellheads were freezing up. If you can't get natural gas to the power plant that runs on natural gas, then you can't convert it to electricity. Then we're all sitting in the dark, freezing for days and days and days. Going into the session, Governor Abbott and the Lieutenant Governor uh, Dan Patrick both said that this was one of the top agenda items. We went through the whole session. We've been through multiple special sessions. And now here we find ourselves where a a gas provider is still able to determine whether they are critical infrastructure.
1: Exactly right. And uh, so not only did it happen during the session, a whole bunch of us legislators froze our tails off in our own houses, including me. My uh, power was out for days and and areas in my house got down underneath 40 degrees. And that's just so a bunch of people came in, in pain, we tried to advance legislation. I did work with some conscientious legislators, but in the end, the, the portions, that part of it got carved out. And, I, and especially with all the special sessions, all the attention that this has gotten, and even the, the warnings and the power outages, and we've had a couple of rolling blackouts and warnings from ERCOT and stuff during the summer, we know that we're set up for a failure and we still have not um, really ensured that we're going to be able to keep the lights on in Texas.
0: At the end of the day is, is the natural gas lobby that powerful in the state where where they are, are are keeping lawmakers from regulating them. Is that what's going on here?
1: You know, it's a good question. Um, They, uh, they don't spend their time lobbying me. So I don't, I can't speak to what other the pressure others feel oil and gas in general. Um, is probably um, uh, uh, the most powerful lobby in the state of Texas. They certainly are have almost unlimited resources. They spend quite a bit of money, and they do get their way. I just believe they can make good. They can make good profits and still be responsible to us. They they this sort of thing is just a common sense public health sort of greater good issue where the cost of weatherizing these facilities is not exorbitant. They just don't want to do it.
3: Well, and, you know, this affects more than just, you know, me, average Joe utility customer. This also affects businesses. Uh, Business hates unpredictability and power outages that are sort of self-inflicted because you didn't winterize your system. That is definitely something that you can't count on. You don't know from one winter to another now whether the electricity is going to hold up. It seems like, you know, businesses might have weighed in and been able to twist some arms a little bit more, too. Is there anything at this point that you can do if you're a business or a consumer here in Texas to try? to move the ball on this, or are we just going to have to hunker down for a winter and hope it doesn't happen again?
1: You know, there is stuff that could be done. And and part of it is capitalize on the outrage that some of these like the Texas state senators, you know, the the governor talks about it, lieutenant governor talks about it. If they want to lobby the actual folks in power and say, look, you might think we got it done, but it is not done. And I've spent a lifetime in manufacturing and and in especially in situations where you're operating 24 seven or you're operating in production production. Uh, line pipeline sort of thing when the inner when your flow is interrupted everything in process is crap and you sometimes you have to start up a whole plant all over again so getting business in on this would be a great way to lobby but also the people let the people have uh, uh advocate with their representatives their state senators let them know hey y'all if we freeze our butts off you know if we lose power in the next big freeze you're going to lose your job in elected position.
0: So you say we're still vulnerable, but some things were done. There was mapping that was yeah. what was created to map critical infrastructure. Explain what that means and whether anything's going to actually come out of that.
1: Um, okay, so uh, the the bill. <laughs> It's particularly ironic because the bill that started out entitled weatherization of natural gas facilities became a a mapping bill. And the mapping exercise, what it really means is Railroad Commission, who are the body responsible for natural gas and oil and gas production regulation, um, they are supposed to go through the state of Texas and determine which facilities are critical for our energy supply chain. So they're gonna map out which facilities are the ones that provide gas for the supply chain, which might be a useful exercise, except a lot of that gas just gets gathered together and sold in bulk. Um, You can't tell if well A is providing gas that ends up in a power plant or not because it all gets collected together and sold by by distributors and stuff. So, uh, incidentally, those were the folks who made the big money when the freeze happened. Uh, uh, So, the mapping exercise, while it might be okay if they were to actually determine some of the largest fields or most productive gas producers, uh, as critical infrastructure and then require them to weatherize and put some some real realistic requirements on them. None of that is happening because they can kind of, uh, providers themselves can opt out, fill out a form and pay one hundred fifty dollar fee and not have to be identified as critical infrastructure.
3: Representative Rosenthal, you know, after being you know going through the session and several special sessions now, is there anything that has changed though that you think might help the situation at all going forward?
1: Absolutely. So uh, there's a number of I I voted for that bill. uh, I believe was SB three in the first regular session, eighty seventh regular session. And there's a number of things in there that are going to help substantially. There's a communication and coordination network so that people can be advised. I think we had a lot of people die and a lot of damage done to houses because there wasn't good communication about how severe the situation was, how dangerous it was to your houses. And so there's going to be more advanced warning, more coordination with uh, the Texas Department of Emergency Management and, and agencies like that to help keep people informed. Also, uh, the electrical providers, the people that generate electricity, uh, so you've got people that generate and then you got poles and wires to carry all that electricity to your neighborhoods and houses, those folks are required to weatherize. So portions of the network that went down um, kind of unnecessarily, portions will be preserved. And some of those uh, electrical plants are going to shore up their uh, ability to withstand a gas outage. So some of them are on their own volition really converting to dual source like if the gas pipe stops delivering gas we can i got a reserve of uh fuel oil that i can use to fire my generators until the got ga- a couple days or until the gas comes back on so and is oh, that what
3: we've come to yeah. here though companies kind of deciding on their own to to uh, on fixes here because it wasn't decided upon by the legislature
1: well, um yeah uh, to an extent so there's some stuff that the legislature did dictate but there's some that we didn't. And like I said, the companies that want to keep the lights on are left to their own devices. It's, not, it's actually not that terribly expensive or difficult to do. It just takes a little planning up front. And, uh, and I'll say that some of the uh, oil and gas, some of the natural gas providers do this themselves too. I know personally, some of the folks who who have gas production fields, the wells, uh, people that transport, the pipeline folks, many of them have already weatherized and particularly in the northern part of the state where it gets cold all the time anyway. Um, a lot of that stuff is going to be uh, buffed up and, and made more robust, but we we still have the potential for large-scale failures.
0: Wow. It, just to hear you say that is fascinating. See, you have some electric generation folks who are wrapping their pipes in their machines, you have some gas folks who are wrapping their pipes in their machines. But after everything we went through in February, it still hasn't been mandated. Is this something, do you think, that the governor calls a fourth special session for?
1: You know, that's the one thing I would really be Line with coming back for a fourth session. So you folks that don't know about uh, state government, it's kind of a volunteer job. We get paid $7,200 a year to do this. It's supposed to be 140 days, right? Here we are 10 months in. I have been doing this all year. And while there's a lot of stuff I disagree with politically, my problem is we're doing all this other stuff. We are not fixing our electrical grid. So if they wanted to call one, I'd come to do it. And, I'll, and I'm just going to note that um, it's not as much wrapping pipes as it is conditioning equipment. Uh, we do basically, we inject chemicals in the flow so it doesn't freeze as easily.
0: I, I was using wrapping pipes. Forgive me for that. I was using that. That's just fine. to explain. No, but that's
1: uh, one of the things people say we can't do it because if you want to insulate miles of pipeline yeah. it's going to be billions uh-huh. of dollars and most of that pipeline is buried it's well insulated. Yeah, it isn't is yeah. like this is
3: why we need an this is why we need an engineer on the program though to explain things like that because I think that the layperson does think, you know, it's just about getting out there and wrapping insulation around yeah. everything.
1: Yeah, no, no, no. We got we got millions of miles of pipeline in Texas and trying to dig it out of the ground and insulate it would be you know, a federal scale, multi-billion, even a trillion dollar project. Well, we're, but we're, if you just have, you know, if you just inject antifreeze, we literally use the same thing, antifreeze that you have in your engine. We inject that in oil and gas flow to keep it from freezing when it gets cold.
3: Well, that seems so simple then. Why can't we just do it? Good question. That sounds simple. It's
1: my, it's my, it's my question, exactly. It's not that expensive to do. Uh, chemicals are not volatile or hard to come by. Uh, in the subsea world, we routinely have chemical injection on our lines because the ocean floor is always cold. So and, why uh,
3: would anybody push back on that, though, if it's just as simple as injecting something? It's cost, isn't Good it? Isn't it cost?
1: You know, they say it is. I think it costs you more to be shut down during a freeze uh, than it would cost you to insulate against that. And by insulate, of course, I mean protect against that. But
3: the, the the Dallas Fed said that too uh, that it was a lot more expensive for it to go down. They estimated at least ten to twenty billion dollars that it cost the Texas economy. Uh, at most, possibly eighty to one hundred thirty billion. Uh, those were initial estimates, uh, and they're saying it would cost about four hundred thirty million dollars annually. A million with an M, as opposed to the Bs for the you know damage that it caused. Four hundred thirty million annually to do this weatherization, so it is significantly cheaper to do it on the front end.
1: Way cheaper, way cheaper, and it's pretty easy as long as you plan in advance. You know, you can you can do it on the backside too. But setting up for chemical injection, you know, we're talking about I don't know maybe ten ten thousand dollars a well to a well head a fitted well head with the production tree on it. Minimum, very basic, is around a hundred thousand dollars. They can be up in the millions are the really fancy ones so you spend you know 10 maybe twenty thousand dollars to uh as an investment per well on, in advance you don't have to run it all the time you, when the weather service says hey we're fixing to get really cold you just go check your supply of antifreeze and turn on the little valves and you're good to go it,
0: it all sounds so simple it kind of is <laughs> Representative, thank you so much for the time. And we're going to keep an eye on this. I presume that if there is not a fourth special session, uh, that that this is something you'll introduce in the next regular session uh, in what? 15 months from now,
3: is it right? 14, 15 uh, months? Gosh. <laughs> it's coming up fast. Uh, uh, representative. Yeah,
1: coming up too fast, but you can bet I'll bring this back in the next session for sure.
3: Hey, before I, before I let you go here, one last question. I don't have a generator at my house yet. Based upon, you know, your knowledge, you have the knowledge here. Should I get one before we go into this winter if I had the cash to do it?
1: If you have the cash to do it, I would get it. And I'm going to let you know after this last uh, uh, freeze that bit us so badly um, if you order one, like for the whole house generation unit, um, you need to be prepared for a six month lead time. It may take six to eight months to actually procure the thing. The little portable ones, you can run a little heater and a stove and some stuff. I would I would very much advise having one of those and uh, and test it out in front of a big freeze. Make sure it's working mm. for you.
3: Wow. A six to eight month lead time. As usual, I've had a great idea way too late. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So that is the electric side of things, the electric generation side of things. But there's always at least two sides to the coin. Uh, We have to hear from the oil and gas side, too, because everybody comes at this from a different uh, viewpoint. We're going to do that in just a second right after a word from our sponsor. All right. uh, Welcome back. And uh, so now it's time to get into the other side of this, Jason. We've talked with the power generators. Uh, Some of them say, hey, we're ready to go. We just aren't sure that those gas guys, those natural gas guys are going to be ready to keep that gas flowing uh, when we go into this winter. And so on the line, we have the uh, president of the Texas Oil and Gas Association, Todd Staples, a name that uh, you may recognize if you've been around Texas for any time at all.
0: What should we call you? Because you're the president of the Texas Oil and Gas Association. You've been a state rep. You're a state senator. you were commissioner of agriculture for a long time. I, I've known you as as commissioner. Uh, what do you prefer? You call me Todd. It's good. Uh,
3: uh, that's <laughs> that's we'll, easiest. I like that. We'll,
0: we'll call you Todd. Um, the, the, obviously, the, the big news lately, uh, Todd, has been about the w- whether uh, natural gas must be able, or must uh, register as critical infrastructure, and there is this loophole that was written in, as you well know, to the to, to the law that says that by paying a hundred and fifty dollar fee, they can opt out of that. Uh, does that make any sense at all? And and how concerned should we be? Like Jason said, uh, whether you know everyone's going to opt out because they might not be ready for this winter.
2: Yeah, that's a that's a great question. Actually, the way the Railroad Commission rules were written, that's an exception in the rules and and it's my understanding the reason that that was done is because you keep in mind this part of the process is three-phased it is critical load designation there's mapping and then there's winterization or weatherization all three of those are essential and need to to work to make this system happen so the critical load designation is about making certain that the most essential assets are registered with the transmission and distribution utilities, the encores and center points of the world, so that during a a winter emergency event and their load shedding must occur. And what that means is there's not enough power to go around. So what's most essential besides hospitals and and nursing homes and those types of things? What essential assets are needed in the natural gas supply chain? So what we're doing is offering comments to the Railroad Commission. And we're going to talk about, uh, prioritizing those assets, starting at the natural gas supply units that use uh, those electrical, electrical generation units that use natural gas, and then mapping that back to, to where those assets that are directly tied to those units are kept on. And I think you'll see a change in the railroad commission's form. Uh, the, the, the those that have to manage the amount of electricity on the grid were very re- worried that we would have too many assets identified. There are over 250,000 oil and gas wells in Texas. You can't keep all of those on. And so you want to keep the most essential during a time of crisis on.
0: You said you expect there might be a change to the Railroad Commission's form on that, that exception that they could you know, pay the $150 fee to not be designated. Any idea when that might happen? And secondly, how many have already signed up as critical infrastructure?
2: Yeah. So, uh, good. Good questions. Uh, the first one, I think the uh, time to get your comments in is November first to the Railroad Commission, and then they'll. I, I anticipate within the next couple of weeks after they we get all the comments in, they'll issue and promulgate their rules. Uh, your second question was what? Now, Jason.
0: Yeah. How, how many have signed up? How, how many yeah.
2: natural gas
0: properties have signed up? as as critical infrastructure right now, any idea? Yeah, so there's
2: been over a 2,000% increase since February of 2021. Uh, When we looked at the numbers uh, from an ERCOT workshop, there were about 60 natural gas supply chain systems that were signed up, and now there was about 1,300 at the last count, and that was around the uh, August timeframe, maybe September. And so, and how many total are there? Well, I mean, there's 250,000 oil and gas wells. There are over 7,400 um, water disposal wells. There are a multitude of gas compression stations all along the line. There are 35 gas storage facilities in Texas that I mentioned earlier contain over 544 billion cubic feet of working natural gas. So there's a there's too many to go on to be able to manage during a, an emergency and to make certain that, that it all works right. And so what we're doing, and we've been working with internally, our companies have, they've been mapping this out internally. They've been working with stakeholders and counterparts and having communications with vendors to make certain that 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 we're going to be able to prioritize or provide tiers is what we hope to do uh, to the Railroad Commission and to the Public Utility Commission so that the 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 TDUs can know which ones to keep on uh, in the event that you can't keep everyone on. And, and Todd, l- let me just press on this. I know
0: Jason has a, a
2: number of questions, too, but
0: um, do you anticipate the Railroad Commission is going to change the rules and, and eliminate that exception? of the $150 fee to, to designate themselves as a non-critical
2: uh, player? I, I think that there were, there's an expectation that they're going to modify that rule. I, I think it's very important, though, that we don't overlook this factor, is that the, the reason that there's a lot of concern about this is not really because people in the business are worried about too many opting out, They're worried about too many opting in, and then the TDUs cannot manage that load. And I think this is a very important point that has been lost in the conversation uh, about this element, because the reason you have this registration is because somebody is going to lose their power. And they're trying to determine who is it that's going to lose their power in this industry. We know for a fact that in February of this year, during Winter Storm Uri. Too many lost their power. They couldn't, you know, an oil and gas well cannot operate in a rolling blackout. The switch needs to be on or it needs to be off because it's a highly complex system and, and it just doesn't work on a rolling situation.
3: So just for people who might get lost in this, uh, what you're talking about here is we're trying to figure out how many of these, let's say, gas wells have have registered uh, as critical infrastructure. And in doing so, they make sure that they continue to get power to run that that wellhead uh, when things get really cold. And you're saying that there's so many of them that we sort of have to be selective as to who says that, hey, yes, I'm critical infrastructure.
2: You've got it exactly right. And here's what is also lost. So we talk about gas wells a lot and there are a lot of gas wells in Texas, but there's also a lot of gas that's produced and it's called associated gas or casing head gas that comes with oil production. So in other words, at at an oil well, you've got three basic streams of product that's coming up. Oil, you have water, and then you have natural gas. And so in order to move that natural gas, The water and the oil has to have a place to go to as well, because if you can't move those products, you have to shut that well in because those 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 products have to have a place to go just like that natural gas does. And so it's not as simple as let's just, oh, let's keep, you know, keep these little wells on. There's just so many of them. And that's why we think the real solution is to look at the storage of natural gas in Texas.
0: Todd, I've been seeing a lot of headlines about the global supply of of natural gas is just going to be pinched uh, for the next you know eight, ten, twelve months or so. We're producing more, is what I'm reading, natural gas, but we're also exporting more. That just leaves uh, less that we can stockpile over on the side in case we need it in emergencies. Is that what's going on? Is that the situation? Because it sounds to me like if we have 504 billion cubic feet sitting over here, could not we just tap into that if the lights go out?
2: And I think that's a big part of the solution is tapping into that storage. But you have to pre-purchase that supply and you have to pre-purchase the distribution or transport of that. And so those are critical, critical pieces. And you have to make certain that the infrastructure is in place to move it from point A to point B.
3: Texas Monthly uh, just did a piece uh, not long ago, though, about how you know, we could use more gas in the market right now just because we're seeing the price spike the way it is, and some are saying it could double by the time it's said and done, and yet we're not seeing drillers running out to the Permian Basin there to, to try to tap into more at this point, uh, that their stocks are surging, they're making money, but they you know, feel like maybe they've been burned in the past uh, you know, when they've drilled too much and so forth. Are we likely to see them back out there uh, going for it again?
2: The rig count has been increasing week over week, uh, along with the increased demand and the price point as it's moving, is moving people back in there. But with the concerns about um, our, our uh, those ESG, environmental, social, and governance concerns that are being talked about, there's a real discouragement to expand our energy infrastructure, and it's working to a detriment in this country. And so I think the reason you haven't seen the big uh, increase in production is because the investment community has not been uh, telling companies to go back out and invest and make some of these long-term investments that are needed. There's such an important infrastructure component to everything we do of producing oil and gas wells, whether it's in the Permian Basin, which is one of the best in the world, Eagle Ford in South Texas, the Hainesville in East Texas. Um, there is such been a, such a discouragement from the investment community and from policymakers in Washington, D.C., that it it really has chilled the, uh, the ability to go out and to make the kinds of investments that you would normally see in response to the increased demand. So uh, policy matters, and it's important for Texans. It's important for our country to get right.
3: So why are we still hearing from electric generators and from lawmakers and from advocacy groups that the gas industry hasn't done enough as we head into another winter here, that not enough legislation was passed to require enough to be done?
2: You know, legislation was passed that would require the assets that are tied to these uh, end users and map and designate as critical to weatherize. And we actually support that. I, I think there's a lot of blame still going around. I think blaming doesn't help any electrical consumer. Uh, every industry needs to do its part. And uh, people are a little tired of hearing um, blaming someone else for their own problems. The oil and natural gas supply chain and production industry is prepared and ready to operate. That's that, And that means that someone has to buy this product, if you wait to go to the uh, football game and watch the Cowboys, uh, you're going to pay a high price for a ticket. Or guess what? You may not be able to get a ticket at all because everyone wants to go. The same is true with commodities. When there is a volatility introduced through weather conditions, it creates uncertainty and it influences prices. And so we're encouraging those that need to rely on this product to pre-plan and pre-purchase and to uh, acquire the distribution assets that they need through making the contracts that they need to to get the product that they need. Uh, that's it. Really, it's that's the way that works, and that's the way it, the only way it can work. And work right,
0: but Todd, don't don't these electrical generation companies have contracts for months on end with the natural gas uh, supply chain systems you know sometimes i hear that they do
2: and and sometimes
0: i hear that they want to buy it on the spot market on the mark on the spot market okay yeah. well l- let me ask you this D- more to kind of jason's question there too my understanding is ERCOT, which regulates and, and, and oversees the electric market ERCOT is requiring all electric generators to be to to weatherize now, the, the exact minimum standards has, have not been set by the state or by uh, the federal government, FERC or, or NERC. Uh, but the Railroad Commission is not mandating the same weatherization for gas. I, is that true?
2: So there are no place in the country mandates weatherization for natural gas production. And, the, and And however, the legislation does call for weatherization of those assets that are mapped and deemed as critical. Those are the assets that are delivering the product to those natural gas users. Uh, natural gas operators have every incentive to make certain that their system is flowing because if they cannot sell product, they're not making any money. And so as a matter of practice, oil and gas operators in the field deploy uh you know, winterization techniques. And I'd love to come show you those to you. I'd love you to come out. We'll go look at some and we'll we'll have some that are available on our website for you to look at as well.
0: I'd love to go see those sometime, too. But uh, you said no place in the country requires weatherization for gas. I didn't realize that. Um, so in, in the northeast, nowhere else requires any weatherization. These are the places that that weatherize are the ones that are critical infrastructure there.
2: Yeah, so not even in Canada can we find where any regulatory authority mandates winterization. And it's because producers are doing everything that they possibly can to move their product to market. They're putting windbreaks over compressors. They're doing these things. And very importantly, it is dangerous. And, I, and I'm glad you brought this up because it would have, it would have been a, missed a big, big issue if, if we hadn't had discussed this. It's really dangerous for natural gas electric generators to say, just weatherize everything. Because from an oil and gas well to that end user, there may be 15, 10 to 15 different components along that supply chain that have to work to get that product to the end user. And so all 250,000 gas wells could be inside of a building and still that product not get there because there are things outside their control of other people along the supply chain. And in a winter emergency, some of those things are gonna go down. And that's why the focus on gas storage is so important. And and if you look in other markets that are regulated, uh, a lot of people have storage on-site. Energy in Southeast Texas did that, and they've got a great story to tell. They had three days of natural gas storage on-site, and they continued to produce during that time frame. And so natural gas electric power generators may want to look at uh, storage on-site, a redundant um, uh, ability to move that product, and our our industry is ready to work with them hand-in-hand to make certain that things are in place that our, our citizens don't suffer through what they went through and all of us did during this last February.
0: Todd, last thing I have for you is I've heard from multiple people who say you might want to get a generator this winter just in case things go south. Do you have a generator at your house?
2: You know, I do not have a generator at my home. Uh, I, if you want a generator, I'd say go get one. Uh, you know, um, we, normally we don't have 150-year, 200-year severity storms like we did this year. Um, our report that's available at texoga.org, we have an embarrassed report that looked at it and said, like, ERCOT planned for the 2011 storm and not for the as bad as this storm could have been. Most people think the 2011 bad storm was bad, but we could have survived through that. Hopefully we won't have that bad of a system. But, um, you know, our goal is to have an, a, a reliable electricity system. Uh, reliable, affordable energy is important to everyone, whether you're a natural gas electric generator, you're an operator of oil and gas well in the field, or you're mom and dad at home providing for your family. That's what our goal is, and that's what we're committed to. And our industry is going through every one of their systems, being prepared for this winter. And I'm very proud of the responsiveness because it hasn't always been conveyed in all the coverage, but they're working uh, literally night and day to be prepared for this winter season.
3: And you know, everybody's eyes are going to be on you guys. Uh, are you even a little bit nervous?
2: Yeah, no, no, not really, no. Because I see firsthand what these men and women in these companies are doing. I, I don't have access to what's happening on the electrical production side of things. But look, we all suffered greatly. Our families suffered. Each of us did have our own stories to tell about what happened this winter season. And so we're all working as hard as can be. And I'll tell you, Many of the men and women in oil and natural gas were out in the field keeping the, the system zone that benefit us all while their families were home without power and without water. And so it's in everyone's best interest to make this system work and work correctly. And I'm I'm confident that, that, that you know, there's nothing that's, I'm, there's no system that's completely fail-proof. But I am very confident that we are significantly advanced today as compared to this
0: february todd we could talk to you a long time man next time i hope we're in the oil patch man we might take you up on that invite and have you take us out to the permian basin i'd love to do that that'd
2: be good that would be
0: good it's time for a field trip and you know what? I'm up for another field trip. Uh, Wheeler, if you can stay here, hold things down, man, I'll take off and uh, I'll bring you back some beer this next
3: time. I was going to say, I'm up for my first field trip. I was uh, I got excited about the idea of being able to actually go somewhere, but um, apparently I'm tethered to work these days, uh, doing the work of two. You, you know, when I first
0: moved here, um, I, I didn't believe that tumbleweed was real until it's I real. went out to the... It, it is. I went out to the oil patch for a story out in uh, Midland, Odessa, and I was driving between the two right there by the airport and this giant thing comes flying across Interstate 20 and then like another 25 come flying across and they, they were all like up, up by the uh, the side of the freeways kind of where they were Uh, as far as they could go, as far as the wind was blowing them at the time. But it was fascinating. That was my first introduction to the oil patch.
3: Roadrunners are are real, too. They're a real thing. And uh, usually they make it across uh, the road uh, just fine. Tumbleweeds, though, you think that they do as well, and they just all end up in those piles. I will tell you, I was in a terrible windstorm in El Paso many years ago, and I hit an enormous, I mean, I tried to avoid it, an enormous tumbleweed. It was a mega tumbleweed. And I dragged that thing probably for about 100 feet before it finally, Finally, let go of my car. Uh, It was it was a nasty experience. So look out for the tumbleweeds. (laughs) You you hit what a forty pound tumbleweed out there? (laughs) It was big. It was more than I thought. It was it was more substantial than I thought it was going to be. I thought you know it's a collection of you know some sticks or whatever. I mean it 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 was substantial.
0: That that is a Texas wonder. I stayed on the road. Uh, You know what? When you write your book, that should be the title of it. The tumbleweed I hit in El Paso.
3: I, uh, you know what? I'm, 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 I'm considering titles right now. I've got a whole list, and I will add that. We'll go over right. those uh, titles someday.
0: So we just asked Todd a moment ago. So, do you have a generator at your place? You I like, do not keep all the, the beer cold in the fridge.
3: No, I I, I honestly I don't have a generator and it doesn't sound like I'm going to be getting one even if I wanted one because you know now the lead time for getting one for your whole house. Maybe I need to sign up for this new Ford electric truck, you know, that can power your house or whatever. But you know, that's probably a wait time too. So uh, I imagine that you're probably prepared. And so my plan all along has just been to come over to your place.
0: Come on over. I got the fortress over here, man. Here's I, what I was, happens.
3: I go huh? every, you, you know how this works, though, Jason. In the industry that we're in, I know yeah. exactly where I'm going to be when right. the water is rising, when the tornadoes are spinning, when it is colder than cold outside and everything has gone down. I'm going to be at work, and we have a generator at work, and that's where I live when these things happen anyway. So why would I buy one?
0: You would buy one for Mrs. Wheeler so she doesn't get upset about you being at work.
3: Okay, I guess I just softly admitted that I have not uh, properly considered my family. (laughs) Oh, my gosh.
0: Hey, guys, don't forget we have a Yolotix hotline number. The number is 214-977-6020. 214-977-6020. I would like to
3: know specifically what everybody else thinks about this because I was surprised. You know, I, I know how state government works, and I knew that, you know, this would fall off of being necessarily the top priority. But I was surprised that they didn't try to button up more because I think that they're leaving themselves potentially very exposed, all of us very exposed, going into another winter. And the part about it that surprises me, Jason, is um, next year is an election year. If you have a tremendous power outage this winter, that's going to make life really difficult for a lot of these incumbents because... People aren't going to be a lot of people aren't going to be forgiving that it happened once. They're certainly not going to be forgiving if it happens twice.
0: Absolutely, and you're right. Going into a you know the primary election when you have right a number behind of the, it. State, yeah. the state offices that are being um, uh, you know challenged in the primary, you're no doubt right about that. The other thing, if you're if you're one of those folks like my mom who uh, subscribes to the old Farmer's Almanac and has them all dating back to when she was born. Um, the old farmer's almanac says that we're going to have a tough winter down here in texas yeah so let's hope that they're not right about that because mm. uh mrs wheeler is going to be cold over there since you don't have uh, any way for her to stay warm
3: i'm going to do something to make this right uh, apparently you know you know as i'm talking about lawmakers i was surprised that they you know maybe didn't go further i, I guess you know i'm in that boat too
0: you should run for office man
3: <laughs> that's the last thing i should ever do Uh, All right, guys. Thanks so much for listening. We
0: always appreciate it. And uh, we'll see you back here again next week.